A warning for listeners. This podcast features stories of war, terrorism, and violence. It's important to hear, but it can also be disturbing. It's the early morning of August 26th, 2021. The sun hasn't risen over Kabul yet. A young Afghan named Hakimi is in bed, huddled over his phone. The 22-year-old is frantically deleting pictures of his friends and family. And he's getting rid of anything that shows him with the Americans. I deleted all photos of myself from my phone. I deleted my posts, tweets, texts, photos, and everything from social media because we had known that Taliban had checked the phones. Hakimi has to be quiet. He doesn't want to wake his family, the eight relatives who share one roof. They had been arguing for weeks. With the U.S. leaving, Hakimi wanted to get out of Afghanistan. But his family said they couldn't. The Taliban had checkpoints on the roads, and they were looking for people like him. Hakimi was a journalist and a civil society activist, and some of his family members worked for the Afghan government. They told me that if you go to Kabul airport, Taliban will find you and they will arrest you. Hakimi was two years old when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, and he always liked the Americans. He even helped translate for them. Not officially, but Hakimi says if he saw an American soldier trying to talk to an Afghan, he'd help bridge the language gap. When the U.S. Air Force or U.S. Marines were in Afghanistan, people feel safe, feel security. They had hope. They were happy. But now, U.S. troops were leaving. The Afghan government had fallen, and the Taliban were walking around the streets of Kabul. They told reporters they'd be peaceful, and that no one would be killed. But Hakimi, like lots of Afghans, didn't buy it. He thought there was no future under Taliban rule. First reason that I left the home, there was no hope for me. There was no income, the schools shut down, the university closed. Second, I was in risk in Afghanistan, so I had to go somewhere to be in a safe place. And the third one is because of supporting my family. I thought that I had to leave Afghanistan, go somewhere, complete my education, and then support my family. At home, Hakimi is careful to not delete everything from his phone. He needs to keep just enough proof to show the U.S. consulate that he's in danger, that he needs to get a flight out. He plans to tell them about his brother, who is an activist and politician, his dad, who worked for the Afghan government. He'll tell the consulate about the family that he's about to leave behind. 
I walked up and saw that all of my family are asleep. I didn't see my mother, my father, because I thought that they will find out that I want to go to the cobbler port. So before sunrise, I left the home without saying goodbye. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about America's eyes and ears in the war in Afghanistan. I'm your host, Bryce Clem. In this episode, we'll take you to the Kabul airport, where 20 years of war collided with broken bureaucracy. You'll hear lots of voices. They're Afghans, veterans, and politicians. In the last months of the war, these people saw the huge backlog of special immigrant visa applicants grow. They'll describe their small piece of the vast evacuation efforts that spanned the globe. You'll hear firsthand accounts of people fleeing Afghanistan and how thousands more were left behind to face an uncertain future. This is Episode 6, Allies Refuge. In our last episode, you heard about the deal between the Trump administration and the Taliban. The two sides agreed that U.S. and coalition forces would leave. But many observers in Afghanistan didn't think that would really happen. This is an Afghan we'll call Billy. That's not his real name, and we've altered his voice. Billy thought the Americans would stay. I, I still didn't believe that they would completely leave. Billy says he had a couple different jobs for the U.S. during the war. He was an interpreter for a while, then became a contractor doing construction work at U.S. bases. Whenever the rumors of a withdrawal came up, Billy says he simply didn't believe them. There was like zero chance that the U.S. government will completely leave Afghanistan after those million, billions of dollars spent here. It was something that, you know, I could not even believe 1%. Billy had applied for a special immigrant visa in 2011, but it was denied several times. So in the last years of the war, he fell into a similar pattern. Billy would file appeals, and he tried asking the U.S. Embassy for updates, all while the Taliban were taking control of Afghanistan. My life uh, during these years was basically like living in a cage. I spent most of my time at home. Going outside, it was scary any minute. Anything could happen. There were explosions, suicide attackers. Like, there was not a single location that felt safe. And it was getting worse. As uh, as time went by, it was getting worse and worse and worse. After the deal between the Taliban and the Americans, Billy still held out hope. He thought the Americans might not leave, and maybe there would be another peace agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Maybe he'd be safe. Everybody believed like that. Until, you know, everything just fell apart. 
When President Donald Trump left office, some thought his successor might change course, that President Joe Biden might not withdraw. Good afternoon. I'm speaking to you today from the treaty room in the White House, the same spot where on October of 2001, President George W. Bush informed our nation that the United States military had begun strikes on terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. But in spring 2021, he announced that the Americans would in fact be leaving Afghanistan. The last troops would be out by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. The United States will begin our final withdrawal on May 1 of this year. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. And we will do it in full coordination with our allies and partners. President Biden's announcement immediately raised questions. Would all American personnel be able to get out before the deadline? Would the Taliban hold up their end of the deal? Could the Afghan government keep standing without American backing? But many veterans of the war were asking, what's going to happen to our partners? The Afghan interpreters, translators, and others who fought alongside us. We immediately recognized that this was a population who was not covered in either President Trump or President Biden's kind of withdrawal planning. That's Chris Purdy. He's a veteran of the Iraq War. Chris is the Director of Outreach for Human Rights First. That's one of the many nonprofits who advocate for SIV applicants. The evacuation announcement brought a new urgency to their work. Thousands of Afghans like Billy were still waiting for an SIV to come to the United States. Now, there was only a few months to get them processed. There was no real plan for the, at that time, 18,000 principal applicants in the pipeline. And so what we saw was, you know, at that point, Taliban making rural gains. At the very minimum, we anticipated civil conflict that would put the vast majority of these people's lives in danger. It was clear they were headed for a crisis. So Chris says tons of groups like IRAP and the Truman National Security Project started advocating for a plan. They called it the Guam Option. We wanted to airlift all of the SIVs in the process, every one of them, all 18,000. We wanted to airlift them to Guam, process them for initial processing in Guam, then split them up into the different bases around the country, and then process them into the U.S. that way. This idea had been around for a while. It circulated a decade earlier during the U.S. withdrawal from Iraq. The Guam option was based on past military evacuations of Vietnamese and Kurds. Chris says they knew this plan might be a tough sell to the White House. So they explained how it could be done. We even put a chart out for them and how many you'd have to fly out each day. We kind of laid out for them, you need to get X number of people on Y number of planes, you know, Z number of times a day. But after they went over that plan, Chris says they didn't hear anything back from the administration. Meanwhile, the U.S. was inching closer to what many thought was becoming a chaotic withdrawal. 
the pushback that we got was one, people just didn't take our calls. You know, we had meetings with the NSC, DHS and state to kind of like outline this plan very, very early on. We submitted memos to them on how this could work. And we, we, heard, we heard crickets. Congress pressured the White House, too. There's a bipartisan coalition called the Honoring Our Promises Working Group. It's full of lawmakers who wanted a safe withdrawal from Afghanistan. You'll hear from two of its members throughout this episode. One is a Republican congressman, Pete Meyer. He used to work for an NGO in Afghanistan. If we have a, a set date for withdrawal, we know that the SIV program has been neglected, but it wasn't like it was a functioning program to begin with. So it was something that had to be stood up or, or accelerated pretty significantly. Meyer says they were in touch with the Biden administration that spring. With the humanitarian crisis getting worse, they worked together. Congress increased the number of SIV spots in the last days of the war. Man, I mean, every time the administration came and said, hey, we need to raise the SIV cap, done. We got more votes to raise the special immigrant visa cap for Afghan interpreters and others who served alongside U.S. forces. We got more votes for that than to award Capitol Police congressional gold medals for their actions on January 6th. Expanding the number of SIVs was a good start. But it didn't amount to a robust plan to get all the U.S.'s partners out. And as spring turned to summer, there still didn't seem to be much urgency from the White House. In June, the Secretary of Defense and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs testified at a hearing before the House Armed Services Committee. Good morning. We have our full committee hearing this morning on the fiscal year 2022 National Defense Authorization budget request from the Department of Defense. We are honored this morning to be joined. This is where Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton comes in. He's another member of the Honoring Our Promises working group and also an Iraq war veteran. At that hearing, Congressman Moulton had questions about the withdrawal and an evacuation plan that was similar to the Guam option. But Moulton wasn't getting much clarity. We have 80 days until our formal withdrawal date. It takes 800 days or more to process a special immigrant visa. So it's too late for the special immigrant visa process. Secretary Austin, why have you not started an evacuation yet? Uh, we are working with the Department of State who has the lead on this along with DHS. Uh, I am confident that uh, at some, we'll, we'll begin to evacuate some of those people soon. Uh, but, uh, but again, I would defer to Secretary Blinken to really outline what the... What the uh, Mr. Secretary, I, I don't need to tell you this, but these brave Afghan partners, the Taliban will kill them if they can. Chairman Milley, if the service chiefs were ordered to evacuate our Afghan allies today, is there a plan in place to get that started immediately? We have the military capability to do whatever is directed by the President of the United States with respect to our allies uh, and, and those that have worked with us. Uh, we are prepared to execute uh, whatever we are directed. In the meantime, the news coming out of the White House seemed like everything was proceeding as planned. In July, President Biden gave an update on the withdrawal. He said it was being done in an orderly and secure fashion, and that the U.S. would be out of Afghanistan 
by the deadline. And this, uh, starting this month, we're going to be- begin relocation flights for Afghanistan SIV applicants uh, and their families who choose to leave. We have a point person in the White House and at the State Department-led task force coordinating all these efforts. But our message to those women and men is clear. There is a home for you in the United States if you so choose, and we will stand with you just as you stood with us. In the speech, Biden said the administration was expanding their evacuation. He announced Operation Allies Refuge. It was an ambitious plan to airlift Afghans out of the country. The first flight from the operation landed a few weeks later, on July 30th, at Fort Lee, Virginia. More than 200 interpreters from Afghanistan and their families arrived in Virginia today. They can wait safely while they finish applying for the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program. The first flight of evacuees landed at Dulles International Airport early this morning. They're staying at Fort Lee, south of Richmond. Chris Purdy was happy to see that Afghans were finally getting out. I I got the text that the plane had landed. And so everyone kind of lit up. We were all very excited. We thought, this is it. I mean, this could be the start. At least now there's a pipeline going. Then Chris and other advocates took a closer look at who the White House was flying out. Tens of thousands of Afghans were trying to leave, but these planes were only taking a few hundred. It turns out Operation Allies Refuge was taking Afghans who were just a few steps away from getting their visas. What they were doing is they were taking people at the end of the SIV process, and they were taking them to Fort Lee, Virginia. So while two or 300 people might have been a good start, the plan wasn't moving fast enough. Remember, there were around 18,000 principal applicants. But if you included their family and dependents, around 80,000 people actually needed evacuation. So Chris says the administration's plan wasn't going to cut it. You don't get to essentially front load people who are already flying out anyways to Fort Lee uh, and call that an evacuation because that's not what it was. Chris says at this point, everyone could see the situation in Afghanistan deteriorating. They were hearing from tons of Afghans still waiting for SIVs. And every time they brought these concerns to the White House, they heard the same refrain. And the kind of the back channel conversations we were getting was that the administration was concerned about optics. That's because while American soldiers left, the U.S.-backed Afghan government was still fighting the Taliban. And the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, was still desperate for the White House's support. The Biden administration thought that the Ghani government could survive for a year, maybe two. And that by relocating tens of thousands of Afghans, it would be a, a sign of a lack of confidence in the Ghani government. They didn't want to see a Saigon moment. They thought that um, if they started an evacuation, that people would I think someone said, you know, run for the exits. Back in Afghanistan, the Taliban was moving fast. The group waged a major offensive against the country's last line of defense, 
the Afghan army and security forces. As the Taliban continued to make gains in May and June and July, we became increasingly concerned. I could not comprehend that the military that we had invested 20 years, trillions of dollars into, would collapse with such spectacular fashion. Well, as the U.S. military winds down its operations in Afghanistan, an emboldened Taliban is seizing more territory. The Taliban's advance across Afghanistan is unprecedented. The hardline Islamists who once harbored Osama bin Laden are gaining ground fast as they sweep through the country. The only thing that matched the speed of the Taliban's advance was the speed of the American withdrawal. In July, American forces left Bagram Air Base, a symbol of the U.S.'s mission in Afghanistan. They did that nearly overnight. With little fanfare, the massive air base that served as the anchor of America's two-decade-long war is now in Afghan control. The U.S. is leaving very, very quietly. All of the troop movements are practically state secrets. It gives the impression that American troops are leaving here in a kind of hidden way, that this is not a victory celebration, that they are quietly going toward the door. Billy, the Afghan interpreter you heard from earlier, followed the Taliban's advance on social media. And he was in touch with other interpreters who had SIV applications in the pipeline. He says if the Taliban took over, people like him would be threatened or killed. Things were getting crazy every day. And I had no other option but to just go ahead and, and, and apply again with, with my SIV documents. Billy got in touch with the nonprofit IRAP and his old American supervisors. They helped him file another SIV application. By this point, tons of Afghans like him were flooding the U.S. Embassy with pleas for help. So as the situation was also getting worse, this was the, the only window of opportunity for me to just go ahead and apply again. So Billy sent in his application. While he waited, Billy worried about the paperwork in his home. He needed it for the SIV case, but it also identified him as a U.S. hire. And with the Taliban on the march, these employment documents could put his family in danger. I started burning all those contracts, all those copies. I still have a few letter of recommendation letters that I have hidden under the ground. By early August, the Taliban's victory campaign was nearly complete. According to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, the Taliban had captured all but one of the country's provinces in a 10-day window. And the U.S. had abandoned almost every airfield in the country. So the Afghans who wanted to leave would now descend on one place, the Kabul airport. Billy thought about going there, too. Everybody rushed to the airport back then, but I was following the social media and the news channels, and they kept making these announcements that those who does not receive an, a specific email from the Department of State should not approach the airport. 
it's scary and we will not let you in. You will not be allowed. So just keep checking your emails and wait for that email. That's what I did. That's what I did. I was, uh, I kept checking my emails and I was hoping that uh, I will get the email. So Billy waited for updates on his SIV. Let's take a step back here. For the entirety of this series, we've told you about a very specific group of U.S. allies. Interpreters and translators like Fred, Janice, and Billy. Afghans who worked directly for the U.S. and were therefore SIV eligible. Those Afghans had been undergoing a slow-motion evacuation for over a decade. But during the withdrawal, many more were trying to leave. Like the members of Afghan society who had tried to build a better Afghanistan during the war. They were officials in the Afghan government, soldiers in the Afghan security forces. They were politicians, lawyers, athletes, activists, and journalists. Afghans who might not be eligible for a special immigrant visa, but still faced an uncertain future under Taliban rule. Jawad Sukanyar is one of them. He worked as a journalist, writing for the New York Times. By August, Jawad had applied for visas for his family, but he hadn't heard back from the U.S. Embassy. I was just trying to see how could I, you know, hide myself and, and my family in case we don't make it. You just could see and feel that the Taliban were coming from all directions. On August 15th, the Taliban made it to Kabul. At this point, the Afghan army and government were in complete disarray. The Taliban took the capital city with little resistance. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani even fled the country. NBC News has confirmed that the president, President Ghani of Afghanistan, has left the country. By day's end, Taliban fighters were sitting at the desk in the presidential palace. He, he never had any military you know, expertise to apply if such a thing would happen. And, and we just saw that in, in, in August, how he just gave up on everything and, 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 and fled the country. With the government gone, Jawad decided that his family just needed to get out. They would head to the airport and hope for the best. So they packed up a few belongings and drove to the airport. We just leave the home for the airport without knowing what, what's our flight and where is our destination and what's going to happen to us. Make that 25 minute drive but this is not the Kabul I saw that morning. This is not the Kabul I saw like days before, like years before. It has just turned to like a city that's already, you know, shattered. You see abandoned military vehicles on the roadside armored vehicles. Jawad was in touch with his colleagues at the New York Times. They were trying to arrange flights for their reporters. 
after Wad got to the airport, his family joined a growing crowd of Afghans trying to get inside. The airport is already overcrowded outside the airport. of thousands of people are waiting, some of them with documents, some without documents. They all think that if they make it to the airport, they will be flown out, they will be evacuated. You know, people are afraid, afraid of what's going to happen. The Taliban are in control. You see the people are rushing to get into the terminal all the way to the tarmac. But then there is no hope. The security situation at the airport was getting worse. Crowds had forced their way through the gates and started running onto the tarmac. Jawad saw people crowd around departing planes. Some were clinging to C-17s as they took off and falling to their deaths. Desperate crowds had been rushing the runway, trying to get on board planes, even clinging to aircraft as they taxied the takeoff. Thousands crowded onto the tarmac no visible security or any semblance of order. Jawad and his family waited in the crowds. The Americans at the gate were trying to sort through everybody, but it was a slow and tedious process. So Jawad and his family sat in line for two whole days, all for the chance of leaving the country. We ran out of food, we ran out of water, there's nothing to sleep. You just have your bags and you're sitting in a corner with other families. By this point, the Taliban had taken over crowd control. They were beating people back with whips. They fired their guns into the air. So Jawad and his family left the airport. They went to a friend's house to regroup. Jawad would wait for updates from his colleagues in New York, and him and his family would try to make it out again in a few days. Back in Washington, congressional offices were inundated with requests from Afghans and Americans, people who saw the doors closing. Congressman Seth Moulton and Pete Meyer The two congressmen you heard from earlier, along with their staff, spent hours on the phone. Here's Meyer followed by Moulton. Congressional offices are being overwhelmed. The State Department's overwhelmed. The people on the ground are being overwhelmed by random requests coming in every which way. And this is following months of letters and private conversations with the White House, with administration officials, the State Department, and DOD, saying you have to get these people out and you can't wait to the last minute. So Moulton and Meyer were advocating for the administration to extend the August 31st deadline. They thought the military should have more time to get people out. So the congressmen decided they'd fly to Kabul. They wanted to show the administration why the military needed more time. You know, our immediate focus was just on being able to figure out if there are things that Congress can be doing or things we need to be raising attention to. And number two, how can we push this August 31st deadline back? The two arrived in Afghanistan on August 24th. They went to the airport and headed to an entrance, a place called Abbey Gate. 
Marines had locked down the tarmac to keep the crowds at bay. Now, they were trying to funnel people through the gates. Moulton was stunned by what he saw. When I went out to Abbey Gate with Peter, we saw this extraordinary sea of humanity. Thousands and thousands of Afghans pressing against the gate. The processing that had previously taken years was now being done rapidly. This image of Afghans packed into crowds, waving documents in the air, crystallized the decades of broken U.S. immigration bureaucracy. But now, instead of a State Department official inside an embassy office deciding who gets to leave, it was a group of Marines at a gate that decided who would make it through. What the Marines would have to do is go out and find someone who met the description of a report they were getting, perhaps through a friend of a friend on a cell phone who's saying, this was my guy that I worked with five years ago out in Helmand province. You got to save him. He's wearing an orange cap. He's waving a red flag. This is where he's standing. He just sent me a grid. Go and find him. Grab that Afghan. Take him by the hand. Put his kids on your shoulders just to get him through the crowd. And he's dragging his wife. The Marines got two young Afghan kids on their shoulders. And they bring him closer to the base where they would meet with young State Department diplomats, young consular officials who were doing everything they could to try to screen these individuals, check their paperwork, make sure it was correct, make sure we were actually bringing the right people out, and making sure that no Taliban or terrorists uh, got through. Get an American through the gates, get a permanent resident, get an interpreter, get you know vulnerable Afghan journalists or female rights activists or, or others who are under threat, get them through those gates. And other times they'd have to walk out, you know, a, a woman with an infant in her arms. You know, pregnant women um, have to walk out, you know, old men on walkers who had gotten through the gates, but who didn't pass the State Department screening with the consular officials. I spoke to one Lance Corporal, probably 18, 19 years old. I asked him about how this was going. He looked me in the eye and he said, you know, sir, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough when the State Department tells you that that older sister, because she's 20 years old, she doesn't qualify to go with her family. And they asked me to take that Afghan young lady by the hand and lead her back out, splitting up a family. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine how unbelievably traumatic that is for the family. And that's what we are asking these incredible young Marines to do. They should never have been put in that position. And just outside Abbey Gate, they saw the Taliban, who was now partnering with the Americans in the last days of the war. The fact that the success of our operations were entirely contingent on the cooperation and the goodwill of the Taliban, which was a staggering thing for 
you know, folks who had up until a few weeks prior been dropping bombs on the Taliban. Think about the irony that these Marines, after going to Afghanistan for two decades to fight the Taliban, to fight the terrorist organization that harbored the attackers of 9-11, after two decades fighting the Taliban, we had to rely on the Taliban for security. The Taliban was literally screening people coming into the checkpoint, and we just had to, on some sort of good faith, trust that they didn't want to get blown up either, so hopefully they were stopping people who were coming with bombs. Moulton and Meyer hoped what they saw on the trip would convince the administration to push the withdrawal deadline back. But the congressmen had changed their minds. Representative Meyer says the Taliban had been repeating the August 31st deadline to their troops for months. If the Americans changed course at the last minute, the news might not reach some Taliban fighters. There was concern that if we tried to extend that, all it took was one foot soldier who thought that things were being changed and that the agenda was shifting to really cause an incidence of violence. I mean, imagine what would have happened if one of those C-17s with 700 Afghan civilians and a dozen American soldiers got shot down. So the congressman got on a flight out of Afghanistan. Throughout the evacuation, anyone with a connection to Afghanistan rushed to get their Afghan friends out. Veterans and civilians created groups like Digital Dunkirk and Operation Eagle. They were full of private citizens who tried to coordinate flights over apps like Signal and WhatsApp, filling a void left by their government. Elliot Ackerman is a former Marine recon officer. He had advised Afghan commandos and during the withdrawal, his phone was ringing nonstop. Ackerman was in a text thread with Afghans trying to leave and Americans looking to get them out. I would imagine for many veterans, and this is certainly my case, you know, we moved on, like the war was over for us. We had gone and we had made our lives in other ways. And then suddenly it's like you're, you're just thrown back 10 years and you're right back in Afghanistan trying to make some good out of what was happening at the end. Everyone was bouncing messages around to coordinate flights out of Kabul. They were tracking down Afghan friends, directing them to the airport, and looking for personnel to get them through the gates. How wrong is it, too, that if you're an Afghan, whether or not you're going to live or die, whether or not you're going to get out or not get out, at the end of the day basically comes down to what's the contact list in your phone. And you're asking veterans to sit there and each person play this sort of Schindler's List game. And there were literally just lists circulating. Put this guy on a list, put him on a list, put him on a list. Yeah, it's a, it's a total collapse. Ackerman was on vacation with his family when an Afghan interpreter named Ali got in touch with him. The two had fought together back in Afghanistan. Now, Ali was trying to get through a gate in Kabul. He was with his wife and child. Ackerman was in touch with some of the Marines at the gate who were trying to help. They were actually members of Ackerman's old company. 
we had him at the North Gate and he was ready to go. And I was in communications with the Marines at the North Gate. They were ready to pick him up. They had a photo of him and a photo of the sign he was holding. And they're saying, let us know, we'll go get him. But Ali wanted to leave with a group of eight others and he refused to go without them. Ackerman hadn't heard anything back in a while. He was nervous that something went wrong. Then he got a message from one of the Marines. It was a photo of everyone smiling. They made it inside the airport. Despite that victory, Ackerman's head was racing. It looked like Ali would get out. But he thought, how did it come to this? How was this the way the war was going to end? It's like on the one hand, it makes you feel very proud. You know, I'm very proud that I know these guys and I think they're heroes. You're so angry that it came down to that. And all these other people just walked away. And at a certain point, there's so many of those people, you know, you can't respond to all of them. So you're then saddled with the emotional cost of having to ignore people begging for help at a certain point. The country just walks away and the veterans are left holding the bag. It's, it's, it's really dispiriting. You know, it's disgusting. It's a betrayal. On August 26th, the young Afghan Hakimi who you heard from at the top of this episode left his home at the crack of dawn. Now, he was in a taxi driving through the packed streets toward the Kabul airport. Hakimi had never come face to face with the Taliban until that day. On the way, there were a great deal of Taliban checkpoints. They checked us. Did you have gun? Who are you? Did you work with U.S.? Are you a journalist? Let me check your phone. Let me check your pocket. Luckily, Hakimi had deleted incriminating evidence from his phone. So he made it past the Taliban checkpoints and got to the airport. He stepped out of the car and saw thousands of people. Kabul airport had uh, four or five gates. So around all the gates, something like uh, 5,000 people. The Taliban fired on them, fired on the sky that go back. If you don't want to get back, I will fire on you. Hakimi got in line at one of the gates. He asked a Taliban guard if he could get through. But instead of giving permission to me, they beat me. They tried to beat me with the bag of guns or something that they had on their hand. So Hakimi left the gate and started searching for another way into the airport. Afghan journalist Jawad Sukhanyar was waiting out the chaos. After their first attempt to get into the airport failed, Jawad and his family were staying at a friend's house in Kabul. Then he heard from his bosses at the New York Times. They had a plan. Head to this address and we'll get you processed for travel. We all get, get to that address and they make a list, register all our names and, and whatever documents we have. This time we get on two big passes. 
head to the airport. We spend the whole night waiting inside the bus. The bus got in through a gate. Jawad and his family stepped inside the airport, where they spent another day and night waiting to get a flight scheduled. Eventually, they were loaded onto a packed military plane with other Afghans. We were asked to be seated on the floor because there aren't any seats and they need to evacuate as many people as they can. But it's a difficult flight because it's cold and then there is no space and I have my, my, my little kids who are falling asleep, they are exhausted. But we make it. Jawad and his family spent the next few days bouncing between planes headed for the U.S. Even though they were safe, Jawad and his family had tons of questions about their future. Questions that even today, they still can't fully answer. What's going to happen to us? We never thought that we will will ever leave our country. We did our best to, you know, do as much as we can in, in, in support of democracy, you know, freedom of speech. But now, you know, things didn't go the way we thought it should. Now we are here, you know. What's going to happen to us in terms of our careers? Like, what am I going to do here in America? The young activist Hakimi was still in Kabul. After being turned away by the Taliban, Hakimi made his way to another gate controlled by U.S. Marines. There, he desperately tried to get the attention of the Marines manning the gate. It was hard, but I did. I pushed other people. So after something like fighting, I was able to go near to the gate. I was able to go close to the U.S. force. And then I speak very loud and show my passports, show my cards, and also show my documents. And then they accepted that, okay, we will uh, let you in to come. Hakimi was finally let inside the airport, but he was still worried. Rumors had been flying around Kabul Hakimi heard that the terror group ISIS was planning to attack the airport. Because hourly, I mean, minute by minute, we heard on social media, get away from the gate because it's probably a bomb will explode. Hakimi went inside and got in line for the U.S. consulate. He had to show his travel documents to the officials, then get on one of the departing planes. But just then, back outside the airport, a man stepped into the crowd around Abbey Gate. He was with ISIS and had a 20-pound vest of explosives strapped to his chest. Once he was in the crowd, surrounded by Afghans and U.S. service members, he detonated it. Hakimi 
heard the explosion. The blast killed 170 Afghan civilians and 13 U.S. service members. It was the single worst loss of American troops in over a decade. Despite the assurances of an organized, steady withdrawal, the bombing at Abbey Gate became a tragic marker of the chaos that had taken hold. Just one day before the explosion, one of the Marines killed in the blast, Sergeant Nicole G., had posted a photo of her holding a baby at the airport. The caption read, I love my job. These would be the last American casualties of the war in Afghanistan. Hakimi saw some of the dead and injured soldiers get carried into the airport for treatment. Why did they die? They died because of me, because of my family, because of Afghan people. They could uh, go to United States and don't care about me, but they came to Kabul airport to help us. And they died because of us. After a few hours, the consulate reopened, and Hakimi showed them his documents. Then he packed into a military plane where he flew to Qatar. Hakimi waited for a few days while his refugee paperwork went through more processing. Finally, he got on a commercial flight bound for Washington, D.C. Hakimi thought back to his family. He had left Kabul days earlier without saying goodbye. He realized they likely had no idea where he was. So Hakimi texted his brother. He said... Guess where I am right now? He said that you are in some European countries or you're in Dubai, for example, or in Germany. I said that, no, I'm texting you from Washington, D.C., United States. Hakimi's brother got the rest of the family together to celebrate the good news. They were very happy and they uh, hugged each other and also my mother, I think, um, she cried when he uh, found out that I'm uh, in United States. So it was very feeling and emotional time for me and for my family. And then my mother took the phone and uh, we spoke uh, with uh, each other and. I apologize. I'm sorry I left the home uh, without permission of you and uh, without any saying goodbye. In the last days of the evacuation, Billy, the Afghan interpreter, was still waiting on his SIV application. At one point, Billy thought about just making a go of it and heading to the airport. I was in touch with some friends who, who even got the airport passage email from the Department of State. And they went to the airport and I was following them uh, to see what it was like. But on TV and social media, Billy saw the massive crowds, the Taliban beatings, the explosion at Abbey Gate. And he still hadn't heard back from the embassy about his visa. So he stayed home and waited for an official green light. 
And I was sure that they won't let anyone without the gate passage until I found out that it was a total miss. And those who pushed and wrestled further in the crowd, even without SIV cases or SIV documents, made it through and were evacuated. And by then, it was too late for me. Billy watched as thousands of Afghans, like him, packed into flights. But he had done what the U.S. government had told him to do. He followed the rules. So, Billy waited and watched as he got left behind. To this day, he still hasn't gotten any updates on his visa. Billy and his family are in Afghanistan right now, still waiting. He has no idea what the status of his application is and if it's even being processed. But he remembers August 30th vividly. That was the day the last American flight left the Kabul airport. You know, I never cry. But that moment, you know, my eyes were just tearing. You know, I'm, I'm a father of two sweet kids. And I would look at them and I don't know what will happen. Because uh, after that, when, when the final flight left, you know, things were like, I don't know how to explain it to you, but it was bad. It was bad. But I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm, I'm still alive. Since the Americans left, Billy says he rarely leaves the house. He's terrified that the Taliban are waiting for people like him to come out of the woodwork. Well, honestly, I will never trust the Taliban. And I will leave Afghanistan uh, if I can as soon as possible. But the problem is, you know, all embassies in Afghanistan are closed. All borders are closed. And, you know, I just don't know how to get out of here. And I will, I will just go ahead and stay low-key and still wait for my SIV, which hopefully will happen, even though there's very little hope. But eventually, I will, um, I will have to take the migration path. I will have to walk, you know, walk in mountains with my family and just keep going until I make it somewhere safe. But I'm not, but I'm not staying here because this life is like dying gradually every single moment. And I cannot take this. For all the chaos in Kabul that summer, Operation Allies Refuge was one of the biggest airlifts in U.S. history. The numbers are a bit disputed, but most estimates say around 80,000 people made it out during the last two weeks of August. According to recent reporting from the Washington Post, over 30,000 of them are eligible to apply for an SIV. In total, only 3,000 Afghans who were flown out actually had SIVs at the time of their evacuation. But the majority of SIV applicants, like Billy, were left behind. For people who made it out but had never worked directly for the U.S., like Hakimi and Jawad, their legal path to permanent residency is uncertain.
We've spent the past six episodes telling you about the war in Afghanistan, the interpreters, the SIV program. But what happens now? Now, there are thousands of Afghans in the U.S., but many have no idea what their citizenship status is or how long they can be here. And even more are stranded in Afghanistan. So what's going to happen to them? That's next time on the final episode of Allies. Allies was created, written, and produced by the show's lead producers, Max Johnston and me, Bryce Clem. Ben Wittes is our executive producer. Mixing and additional editing from Rebecca Seidel. Production and editorial assistance from Ian Enright, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and Megan Nadolsky. Theme music and scoring from Max Johnston. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Senior producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. At Lawfare, editorial support from Natalie Orpet, Catherine Pompilio, Claudia Swain, and Scott Anderson. A special thanks to Chris Purdy, Congressman Pete Meyer, and Seth Moulton, Lutheran Social Services of the National Capital Area, Elliot Ackerman, Jawad Sukanyar, Hakimi, and Billy. Allies is a production from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show. It helps spread the word.